Really, just rich songs today. Praise God for, for the, the people who are writing songs, new hymns for us, as we read in Isaiah, sing a new song, new hymns for us that we can learn and, and sing about the, the grace of God over and over again. Well, our sermon text today is uh, from Matthew chapter 12. We are continuing our study in Matthew's gospel. You'll want to follow along today. I would encourage you to because... I didn't have time to make slides. So you're going to want to open up the Pew Bible if you didn't bring your own, and you'll find our text today on page 817. And as we always do, we go verse by verse through the Word of God to hear from Him. Let me read for you Matthew chapter 12, verse 22 and following. Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Him, and He healed him. So that the man spoke and saw, and all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. And no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. These are the words of our Savior. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this word. We thank you for what you are about to do with it. But we know, as we heard from the prophet Isaiah today, that in order to understand this, our ears have got to be unclogged. Our hearts have got to be softened. Our eyes have got to be opened. And we know that happens by your Spirit working in us. So, Lord, Spirit, work in us this morning that we may see and understand and hear and understand and know our Savior more dearly. It's just in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated, church. Well, this will be the last... A sermon in Matthew for a few months. Uh, beginning next week, we'll begin our Advent series. Uh, Josh will be preaching next week. Uh, Pastor Saunders will be preaching the week after that. After our Advent series, beginning in the new year, we'll go through a, uh, a couple-month topical series on the, the spiritual disciplines, the means that God's Spirit uses 
to increase our faith and, and to, to grow us in Christ's likeness. So I'm looking forward to doing that with you at the beginning of the year. But for now, here we are continuing in Matthew. And there's this theme that, that I think you might know about, but I want to remind you of. It goes throughout Scripture. It's a, this theme of, of, of the light versus the darkness. If you remember from the beginning, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And then what was the first act of God on the first day of creation? He speaks light into the darkness. You keep reading, get to Exodus, and God is rescuing his people out of Egypt. And the ninth of the plagues levied at Pharaoh's people was the plague of darkness. Let me read from you from Exodus 10. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But, but look at this. All the people of Israel had light where they lived. Darkness over the land of God's enemies and light from God for God's people. David, if you keep going in the Old Testament, David says, light dawns in the darkness for the righteous. It says that in Psalm 112. The writer of Proverbs tells us that the way of the wicked is deep darkness. To forsake the paths of uprightness is to walk into the darkness. And then, and then we get to the prophets and we see this darkness and light theme continuing in Isaiah. Isaiah prophesies in Isaiah chapter 9 about the people who live in Galilee who will be the first ones to receive the Christ. Do you remember this? When we were studying Matthew a year ago, that the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in land of deep darkness on them Light has shown. Isaiah also tells us in that passage that Matthew quoted last week and that we read earlier, Isaiah 42, to, that the Messiah is coming and this is what he's going to do. He's going to open the eyes that are blind to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. Are you picking up on this theme now? Darkness and light. We're in darkness. The, the Messiah comes and rescues those who are in the darkness. The prophet Ezekiel says that when the Messiah comes, he will be as a shepherd, seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered. So I will seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. The shepherd goes into the darkness to rescue his sheep. The good shepherd is gathering his sheep in. John tells us when we get to the New Testament that the light shines in the darkness and the darkness shall not overcome it. What's interesting about that John passage that you, you begin to see as you've watched this theme of light and darkness, you, you begin to see in John's understanding that the darkness seems to have a personality to it. The darkness shall not overcome it as if the darkness is trying to overcome the light. As if the darkness has a fight. A fight to, to keep things and people in the dark. And that is exactly the reality of what's happening. There really is this battle between the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. 
The Apostle Paul reveals this battle to us in his letters. He tells us in Colossians 1, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son. What do we see there? The darkness is a domain. What's a domain? A domain is a place that has a ruler. A place of rule that we need rescuing from, transferred out of. We see it in Ephesians as well. Ephesians 6, 11 through 12. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we, Christians, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. Peter is also aware of this battle. 1 Peter 2.9 But you, Christians, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. All throughout the Bible. From Genesis to Revelation, all throughout the Bible, we're made aware of this realm of darkness, which is another way of saying evil. And it's ruled by the one called the prince of the power of the air, or the devil, or Satan. And his realm, his domain, is earth. When Adam rebelled against God, he was unknowingly inviting the evil one to gain influence over humanity. And that battle that began way back when is the backdrop that we need to see here in order to understand our text here this morning. We've got to understand what's going on in this parallel world all around us. Another thing we haven't talked about is that the, the, these demonic powers know, the darkness knows that Jesus is present in our text. All right, so as we've been going through Matthew, we've had this unseen battle taking place. The demonic powers, the darkness knows that the Son of God is there. Remember, Satan tempted him in the desert, trying to cause him to fail in his ministry. And knowing that the Son of God is present, that the kingdom is advancing, Satan has no mind to just sit back and watch his own kingdom be taken from him. All right, so we need to understand that's going on. Many people, many theologians believe that 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 reason, that that advancing kingdom there, when Christ walked the earth, is the reason why we see so many demons in the Gospels. That Satan is aware of, that there is a, a very real battle taking place, that the kingdom is advancing into his territory, and so he sends out his soldiers. You know what that is? You hear that squeaky sound? <laughs> you hear it? So, <laughs> so <laughs> well, all right, so back to the text. Here we are in Matthew chapter 12, verse 22, and one of these demons who has been sent by Satan, one of these demons who opposed God has possessed a man, and this, this has caused this man to be blind and mute. We see that right at the beginning in verse 22. If you have your Bibles open still, you see it. Demon-pressed man who's blind and mute. 
And he's brought to Jesus, right? A, a demon has caused this. Someone finds out Jesus is in the area, so they bring the man to Jesus. And just as Isaiah 35 said would happen when the Messiah comes, and we've seen that passage over and over again, this Messiah, the promised one from the line of David, the son of David, he heals this man, doesn't he? He casts out the demon. And the man is given sight. The man is given a voice. It's a familiar story. We've seen this a lot in Matthew's gospel. Only this time, the crowds notice, finally. that They finally seem to be catching on to what's happening here. Look at what they say in verse 23. Look at your text there. They say, can this be the son of David? Well, these crowds, they're, they're, they're good Jews. They know their Bibles. They know that someone who casts out demons and heals the blind and gives a voice to the mute, they know that that is the Messiah. That's what Isaiah had written to them so very long ago. And so they're, they're saying it out loud now. Can this be him? Can this be the son of David? And so you can imagine the setting there, the talk is beginning to spread throughout the area that this Jesus of Nazareth, this man who's been healing and teaching and confronting the Pharisees, people are beginning to say he's the Christ. Well, the rumor gets around. The Pharisees hear about it. They don't like that. And so they respond. And what do they say? Look at verse 23. Or verse 24, rather. But when the Pharisees heard it, that is when they heard the buzz of the crowds, when they heard this rumor going around that Jesus is the Christ, when they heard that, they corrected them. They said, no, it's only by Beelzebul, which is another way of saying Satan, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. The Pharisees are aware that there is a spiritual battle. They know what we just talked about. They know their Bibles. They know that there's a spiritual battle going on in the world around them. And they know that Satan, the one that they call Beelzebul, is the one that they are against. Or the one they think that they are against. And they're convinced that it must be by Satan's power that Jesus is doing these miracles. After all, Jesus has opposed them, right? And they think they're on God's side, right? And so, this Jesus, who was opposing them, must be on Satan's side. They're convinced. They've said it already before. We saw it back in chapter 9. But now they're spreading this lie out loud to the crowds around them. They're bringing confusion to God's people. And Jesus, the good shepherd, sees his sheep being brought into confusion by these false shepherds. And so he corrects them. And he does this in a couple ways. First, he presents a simple, logical argument, what we call reductio ad absurdum. He, re- he reduces what they have said to absurdity. He, he says this in, in verses 25 and 26, and I'm just going to put it in my own translation. He's saying to these guys, think about it, guys. We both know that there is a spiritual battle taking place between two kingdoms. Does it make any sense if the prince of the one kingdom starts killing off his own soldiers? That's Jesus' question, isn't it? Would that make sense? Why why would the, the general kill his own soldiers to win a battle? Do you know why Jesus uses this simple argument from reason? I think a lot of times when, when we are blinded by sin, 
our faculties for reason are blinded as well. We just stop thinking. I know this has happened to you before because it's happened to me. I know it's happened to many of you. We we get so caught up in, in some sin, whatever it is, that we totally lose our ability to think. And then, you know, it could only be a couple days later, but you look back at your foolishness, and what's the first question you ask? What was I thinking? (laughs) Right? What was I thinking? Sin clouds our ability to reason. And Jesus, seeing this in the Pharisees, is correcting them with reason. Not only is sin in action against God, oftentimes sin is just plain dumb. It doesn't make any sense. And Jesus is pointing that out to the Pharisees. He's saying, guys, you're being irrational. You're not making sense. Satan is not a ruler who's so daft as to lead his troops against each other. Well, that's approach one, the theological approach, the approach from reason. The second argument we see in verse 27, if you look there down at your Bibles, and if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they, which is to say your sons, they will be your judges. Apparently, and the Bible is not clear on this because the Gospels are not about the Pharisees. They're about Jesus and his his work. But apparently, some of these Jewish religious people are also doing exorcisms. They're casting out demons, just like Jesus is. And Jesus is simply asking this. There's other guys that are doing this. What is the power that they're using to do it? Is that Beelzebul as well? Are they also working for Satan? Because they're clearly on your side. You like these guys. You see what he's done? He's he's turned the corner from, from defense to offense. And then he pushes harder. Look at verse 28. Based on Jesus' argumentation, he's undermined the idea that this is the work of Satan. And if it's not the work of Satan, it must be the work of the Holy Spirit. It has to be the Holy Spirit doing this work. And if it is the Holy Spirit working through Jesus, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Do you see that in verse 28? But if it is by the Spirit, if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. That's the only other alternative. You see what he's saying? If the the Holy Spirit is with me, like I'm arguing for, if if the Holy Spirit is with me, then prophecy is being fulfilled. The kingdom is upon you. It's here. Think about Isaiah 42, as we read it earlier, and we saw it last week as well. It's packed full of this kingdom victory language. And it begins with, I will put my spirit upon my servant. But we also see that the victory side of things, Yahweh, the Lord, he goes out like a mighty man. Did you see that when Josh read it? The Lord goes out like a mighty man, like a man of war. He stirs up his zeal. He cries out. He shouts aloud. He shows himself mighty against his foes. The kingdom is advancing. Isaiah 42 is being fulfilled. Jesus is leading the charge. But to do that, Jesus, our warrior king, has to go into enemy territory. He has to advance into the enemy's kingdom. And that's what he says for us in verse 29. 
Look at verse 29. How can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Jesus has come to plunder the house of the devil and the spoils the spoils of victory are us we are who Jesus is here to take from the evil one but to do that Jesus says he's got to bind him up he's got to bind the evil one he's got to tie him up and Jesus is also the one to do that the stronger man binds the strong man. Jesus is the one who will be victorious. He isn't just going to go after all these little minions here and there. He's going after their ruler. He's going to hunt him down and bind him up and disable him. And then he's going to take his stuff. Now think about this. This isn't just a rhetorical device that Jesus is using. This happens. At what point in history... At what point in Jesus' ministry did Jesus bind Satan? When did this binding of the strong man occur? Let me read for you a couple of verses. Write these down. If you're taking notes, Colossians 2, 13 through 15. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, at the cross. Or Paul is saying, at the cross. At the cross, Jesus, the Christ, disarmed the authorities. Hebrews 2.14 Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus, Likewise, partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. You see that? He, he destroys Satan, the enemy, the one who has the power of death, and he delivers, delivers us. Paul says, at the cross... Satan was disarmed. The writer of the Hebrews says at the cross, that ruler was destroyed. They're saying the same thing. They're both talking about how when Jesus died on the cross, he disabled Satan. He took the power of sin away from Satan. He rendered him ineffective. The apostle John actually uses the word binding. Jesus uses the word binding. The apostle John uses the word binding to talk about this event. Uh, In Revelation 20, says that the work of Christ on the cross led to the binding of Satan so that he might not deceive the nations. Let me read for you Revelation 20, verse 2. And he seized the dragon. This is an angel who does this. He seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him. There's that word, bound him for a thousand years, threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer. Brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters, Jesus is victorious over the evil one. 
He has bound him. He has plundered his house and rescued you and me from the domain of darkness. There's a spiritual battle, a spiritual war taking place between two kingdoms, but the enemy kingdom's most powerful ruler has been disarmed and bound up by our king. Jesus has defeated him. If you're a Christian, you know that this means the power of sin has been defeated in your life already. You're no longer a slave to sin. As we sang last week from Charles Wesley, my chains fell off, my heart was freed, I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Right? We, we, we followed Christ out of the dark dungeon, out of our bondage, into his glorious light. That's what it means, if you're a Christian, to understand what the cross has accomplished. But if you're not a Christian, do you know what that means? It just means this one thing. You have not grasped the power of the cross. You haven't come to realize through faith that Jesus Christ actually did die on that cross and he actually did destroy the power that sin has over your life. You're like a a prisoner. The one in Pilgrim's Progress. Have you read that book? There's this prisoner. He's sitting in a cage the door has already been unlocked. But, but he's so consumed with himself that he cannot see what Christ has done. Friend, take a hold of Jesus Christ. He's, he's rescued you already. He's already brought you out. Take a hold of him. The one thing we cannot do is sit in neutral territory. There is no neutral territory. There's there's no place between the domain of darkness and the kingdom of the beloved son. There's just darkness and light. Jesus makes that very clear for us in our text this morning. Look at verse 30. He says, very simply, whoever is not with me is against me. There's no gray there, is there? There's no kind of with me or kind of against me. There's just with him. And against him. And he, I think he's certainly talking about those demons that are in question there. They're not with him. We know that. That they're against him. And I think he's also talking about the Pharisees, because he's speaking to them. If they're going to continually oppose Jesus, then they'll soon find that they were working against the kingdom. They were opposing the kingdom of God. They were against the king. They think Jesus is working for Satan when it actually is them who are enemy operatives, isn't it? They're a bit confused. But listen, it's not just Pharisees, because it's easy to throw stones at Pharisees. It's not just the Pharisees who are listening to Jesus there. The crowds are there listening to him as well. The crowds are hearing him say, you are either with me or against me. Either you're with me Or you're in the darkness. And I would say to you, if Del Cero and visitors, if you're going to identify with anybody in this story, identify with the crowds. Listen to Jesus' words to the crowds. 
Listen to him say you're either with him or against him. And listen to what he says next. Look at how he finishes verse 30. Whoever is not with me is against me. And this one struck my heart to the core this week. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. You see that in verse 30? Whoever is not with me is against me, but whoever does not gather with me scatters. What does he mean by that? Whoever does not gather with me scatters. He's saying to be on his side means you will be gathering people in to him. You'll be announcing that the great rescuer has come. That's what it means to be with Jesus. Did you pick up when when I read from Peter earlier? He says, we are a people who have been set apart, called to Christ. We're a people for his own possession, their holy nation. Do you remember that? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. That's gathering. You've been called out of the darkness into the light. Gather. Gather more from the darkness and into the light. Be the means that God uses to proclaim the gospel. If you are on Jesus' side, you are participating in the gathering. You will be announcing. You will be proclaiming the good news to the lost. You're either with him and gathering, or you're against him and scattering. Well, if gathering is calling people to Christ, what is scattering? Because some of us are getting nervous. Scattering is pushing people away from Christ and into deeper darkness. Some do this simply by telling people that Jesus is a fraud and a liar. They're actively dissuading people away from Jesus. Think of the, the secular left. People are actively saying that to be a Christian is dangerous for society. That's scattering people away from the shepherd, isn't it? We get that. We understand that open and intentional anti-Christ scattering is speaking against Christ and his followers. But it is not just those who actively oppose Christ who are scattering folks away from Christ. If you're not truly trusting in Christ... That is, you haven't been changed by him, and yet you claim the name of Christian. Think about that. You're not truly a Christian. You haven't really been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, made new and changed, and yet you're claiming the name of Christian. Do you know what you're doing to people around you? You're scattering them away from Christ. By your words... And by your deeds, you are proclaiming to them that what Christ accomplished on the cross is nothing. If you are no different than the world around you, then rather than gathering people to Christ, you are pushing them into further darkness. Because if you're not gathering, you're scattering. Jesus does not leave any in between, does he? There's no gray. You're either in the light 
reflecting the light, increasing the light, or you're in the dark. Those are the only two categories Jesus gives us. But I don't want you to leave with that feeling struck down, okay? Because Jesus doesn't stop there. That's why we preach verse by verse. Because there's more verses. Here's the good news. No matter how deep you are in the darkness, when the light reaches you, when you receive Christ, there is no amount of darkness that cannot be forgiven and brought into the light. Amen? There's nothing you've done that can disqualify you from what Christ offers you. Anything you've done has simply been darkness being darkness. It's not shocking God. And all that Jesus Christ has done for you is simply light being light. You can be forgiven. Look at the beginning of verse 31. Therefore I tell you, every sin, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. And you're thinking, not my sin. Yes, your sin. Adultery, forgiven. Theft, forgiven. Robbery, forgiven. Pornography, forgiven. Anger, bitterness, selfishness. Yes, that too, forgiven. Do you destroy every relationship that you're in? You are forgiven. Drunkenness, forgiven. Homosexuality, pride, lying, murder, all of it, forgiven. Every sin. Amen? Amen. This is good news. Every sin, including the sin of pretending to be a Christian and scattering people away from Christ your whole life until Christ grasps a hold of you and says, you haven't known me and forgives you. And then you begin to gather. Verse 32 even says that whoever speaks a word against Jesus will be forgiven. Look at verse 32. You see that? Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. That means if you have cursed Christ, cursed Him, you can be forgiven. If you have defied the history books and you've defied the Word of God and said that Jesus never existed, it's all a sham, even you can be forgiven. If as a follower of a false teacher, you have spent your whole life believing and telling people that Jesus is the spirit brother of Satan, you can be forgiven. If as a follower of Muhammad or Christopher Hitchens or some college professor, you have believed and said that Jesus isn't really divine or that he's not the son of God or that he's just a teacher and nothing more, all of that can be forgiven. There should be no sin that keeps you from Jesus Christ. Because all of it, anything you've done, anything you've thought even, can be forgiven. Look at the Apostle Paul. Right? 1 Timothy 1, verse 13. Paul says, though formerly I was a blasphemer. A blasphemer. A persecutor. He was killing Christians. An insolent opponent. He was one that was against Jesus. But what happened to Paul? He says, I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me 
with the grace or with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. See what Paul's saying? The worst three sins he could think of. He blasphemed God. He persecuted Christians. He was an opponent of Jesus Christ, of the kingdom of God. And God showed him mercy. There's no one that doesn't fall in between here and that. Everything. Everything can be forgiven. If you've heard and received the call of Christ, if you've known the power of the cross, you know. You know this. You were once characterized by darkness that filled you and the filth of sin that covered you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. That's what happened for you. There's nothing that disqualifies. Nothing. Except one thing. Stubborn and persistent hard-hearted unbelief. That's the one thing that will keep you from repenting. That's the one thing that will keep you from receiving the forgiveness that Jesus Christ offers. In the lives of the Pharisees that Jesus is talking to in our text, that unbelief comes in the form of what Jesus calls blasphemy of the Spirit. You see that? Read with me the rest of verse 31. Every sin will be forgiven, people, but... Except the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And then in verse 32, he doubles down. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age, which is to say while they're still alive, or in the age to come, which is to say after they die, hoping that something else would happen. Blasphemy against the Spirit clearly means, from the text, it clearly means speaking against the Holy Spirit. But in the case of the Pharisees, it's kind of unique. It means to, that they're saying that something the Spirit is doing is actually being done by Satan. See, the Spirit is the one who is empowering Jesus' miracles. The Spirit is the one who is, who is testifying to the watching world that Jesus is the Christ. And the Pharisees are not just thinking in their minds, this can't be of God. They're, they're taking it a step further, aren't they? They're actively preaching and teaching that what the Holy Spirit is doing is actually demonic. And Jesus is saying, if they keep it up, they will not be, they cannot be forgiven. And what does he mean by that? Well, these men, these Pharisees, in that particular time, they're going to see things that you and I didn't see. Right? They're going to see Jesus go to the cross. They're going to see him nailed to the cross. They're going to see him die. And some of them are going to see him resurrected. Some are going to hear from trusted sources that he rose from the grave. But as Jesus is going to tell us, that won't be enough for them. They will see the sign of Jonah and they'll deny it. They'll see the one who was buried for three days and rose again and they'll deny what's happened by the power of the Spirit. In their hard-heartedness, they'll continue to believe and teach that what the Spirit was doing in Jesus was demonic. That's the blasphemy that Jesus says is unforgivable. It's It's a consistent denial of the Spirit's power in Jesus and the Spirit's testimony to them 
And because these men were shepherds, leaders, and teachers in their communities, they're leading others away from Jesus. Well, we live in a different time, right? We're here after the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. Some of you are old, but you're not that old. We haven't seen the Holy Spirit do the things that these Pharisees saw the Spirit do. The only unforgivable sin today is to be so set in your unbelief, so set in your own denial of the Lordship of Jesus Christ, that you will hold firm in that unbelief all the way to death. Because you've never repented. You've never received Christ. That's the unforgivable sin. If you're here this morning and you're wondering right now if you have possibly committed the unforgivable sin, check your pulse. If your heart's still beating in your chest, I can assure you, you have not committed the unforgivable sin. Because you can still respond to the Spirit's calling you to faith in Christ. And friend, if you're already in Jesus Christ, if you've already been forgiven, brother, sister, I want you to do something. I want you to stop worrying that you didn't do it right somehow. And just rest in Him. Can you do that? This passage is meant to lead you not to doubt your salvation. It's meant to lead you to Christ. It's a warning to the Pharisees, but it's supposed to show you two things. One, there is a Holy Spirit whose testimony of the gospel has brought new life in you. Praise God for that. Thank Him for that. And two, it also shows us that Jesus, and only Jesus, has the authority to determine who is forgiven and who is not forgiven. And if you're trusting that he died for you, he has determined you have been forgiven. So don't be anxious. Don't be anxious that somehow what he's done for you isn't enough to cover you. Rest in him. Don't be anxious that somehow because you keep struggling against that same sin day after day after day, that somehow you've made yourself unforgivable now. It's not true. Listen, if you're actually struggling, if you're actually fighting against your sin, you know what that is? That's proof that you've been forgiven. You have been given new life. The light has broken into the darkness of your heart. Praise God. By the Spirit's help, you are fighting sin. You didn't have the ability to do that before because of what Christ has done for you on the cross. Now you can. So rest in Christ. He has bound your enemy. Rest in Him and trust that what He has begun in you, He will complete. Amen. He'll complete it. He's your anchor. It's not you, He's your anchor. Let's thank him. Lord in heaven, we are so grateful this morning. On behalf of every Christian in the room, Lord, I want to thank you. 
that you've saved us. You have defeated, defeated the power of sin and death. So thank you. God, for anyone in this room, and anybody in this room that knows somebody else who has not known the power of the cross, who has not known what it means to have sin defeated in their life, oh Lord, would you bring that to light to them? Would you send gatherers to them? And Lord, right now we're gathering. Would you bring light to the darkness in here right now? We ask these things in your spirit. And in the name of Christ, amen.